Welcome to All Sides with Ann Fisher. Closing arguments start tomorrow in the federal racketeering trial of former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and former Republican Party Chair, or I should say Ohio Republican Party Chairman Matt Borges. Last week, Householder took the stand in his own defense and told jurors he never took a bribe and he never abused his power to pass a ratepayer-funded billion-dollar nuclear bailout for First Energy. It's our weekly reporter roundtable. Joining us, Jeremy Pelzer, politics reporter at Cleveland.com. Welcome back, Jeremy. Hi, always great to be here, Ann. And Anna Staver is State House reporter for USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Welcome back, Anna. Good morning. And Ohio Capital Journal reporter Marty Schladen is joining from Cincinnati, where he has been covering the Householder and Borges trial. Welcome back, Marty. You won the prize. Hi, Ann. I don't know how big of a prize it is, but I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Coming up tomorrow, closing arguments. This has been, you know, a complex case by any measure, but with testimony going on for weeks, what what will the prosecution say tomorrow uh, in closing remarks? Is it going to be just echo the opening remarks? I think that's generally the way it works. In opening remarks, you foreshadow what the evidence you're going to put on is. And then in closing uh, statements, you say, see, I told you I was going to show this, this, and this, and here's the evidence we adduced uh, to support that. And I think also they're going to really hit uh, a lot of the inconsistencies that they hammered when uh, Householder took the stand last week. Yeah, what happened with that last week? Well, by a lot of accounts, it was a disaster for the former speaker. Um, you know, it, it, the conventional wisdom is you don't put your client on the stand because prosecutors are waiting to pounce and catch them in a lie. And, um, uh, you know, Householder just, you know, he said a number of things that were even superficially untrue under friendly questioning by his own lawyers, like uh, that, you know, he was one of his big priorities was clean energy. Uh, this is a guy who, had was in trouble because a coal mine he owned had failed and who had passed coal subsidies during his first stint as speaker. Um, what uh, what's your sense about how his testimony played with the jury? I I think it was not good for him because the goal I think for the prosecutors was to show them that this guy doesn't tell the truth about a lot of things. So perhaps you should doubt everything he says. Um, you know, it came down to uh, he denied being at dinners in DC during the Trump inaugural with First Energy executives. And the prosecutors showed that the metadata on photos that Householder and his party themselves took put them in those places at the times that Householder said he wasn't there. I mean, is he living in a different century? Did he not realize that they could track where he was with phone uh, data? Uh, Anna Staver? Uh, I don't know. I do think that uh, Householder was hoping or trying to rely on the fact that he is a skilled public speaker, right? Like he's used to speaking to an audience. He's used to tackling difficult questions. And I think he was hoping to sort of turn on that like folksy Appalachian been Appalachian farmer charm. So I think he was hoping that that positive would outweigh the negative or sort of portray himself as a simple farmer instead of like the scheming mastermind at the center of this deal. Now, I don't know that I, I think the photo that Marty's referencing and please correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't actually have householder in it. It is. It appears, I guess, to have like his, his son. Knee, yeah. And so I guess there's some sort of plausible deniability there, but I, I don't know. Hmm. Well, he just testified that 
uh, very much of what he did that weekend. He was with his son and often with the rest of his family. Um, but you're right. It, it, it's not conclusive, but it tends to undermine his story. And the amount he at this, the, the the country Republican scenario that he tries to paint about himself doesn't didn't they they kind of packed away at that as well, didn't they, Marty? With when it came to the fact that he even thought he could fly on the you know the fancy private jet, uh, he went to uh, World Series games, twenty five hundred dollars a ticket. He says he didn't pay that much. He kind of he talked about his frugality, but his actions speak louder than words. Well, that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, the, the day before he bragged, he called himself cheap and said he drives a uh, 2001 vehicle. Uh, but then the, then he ex expected the jury to believe that he took a private flight without fully intending to pay for it, without knowing how much it was going to cost him. Um, I'm not all that cheap, but I would never do that. <laughs> go to the rate thing so how do you think anna that this story's been tracking with the public um i think it's doing decently well um especially i think obviously i think everybody on capitol square is very very involved um you know when our reporters down there aren't tweeting i will get messages like do you know what's going on with the trial i need an update like why mm -hmm. is nobody t like tweeting about it so i think but with like the public at large um, I will say um, I use uh, my kids uh, bus stop like what what like the moms and dads are talking about at the bus stop as a gauge of what's resonating. And I don't know that I think they know it's happening, but they don't really follow it closely. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, uh, Jeremy? Uh, I totally agree. I think that especially, you know, what in the bubble of Capitol Square, this is a big deal. You know, the what authorities say is the largest bribery scheme in Ohio history. But if you look at what people are talking about, it's probably more of the East Palestine crane, uh, train crash. It's more about taxes. It's more about national politics with uh, President Biden and Trump and DeSantis. And I think that's more about what people are focused on. I think Anna's right. You know, they people have heard of it, but it's not exactly first on their minds. Hmm. Um, and if he does not, is not convicted, uh, Larry Householder can run again for public office, right? Sure. I mean, I imagine uh, even if he is convicted, there will be appeals. Yes. Uh, and he's going to run ag again, but then I never say never. Uh, you have to, He has a lot of support in his home county of Perry County, mm -hmm. which, of course, is east of Columbus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you never want to say never. But at, at this point, especially under the scrutiny he's going to be under, uh, you have to wonder if he's going to hold public office again. And, of course, if he gets convicted, he could get up to 20 years in prison. That's the other side of the coin. What about Matt Borges? He did not uh, testify um, in this case. Marty Schladen, right? He did not testify. And his, you know, given the whole scope of the trial, his name did not come up nearly as often as householders did. And when a lot of prosecution witnesses testified, Borges's lawyers, when it was their chance to cross-examine, just got up and said, did you deal with Matt Borges? And the answer was no. And then Borges's lawyer sat back down. I think the, that that's what they're going for is that he was not at the center of the scandal. Right. It was a pretty narrow slice of the pie. Right. Yeah. It right. felt more with the uh, referendum 
So after House Bill 6 passed, for those who don't remember, uh, a group tried to get it on the ballot. They tried to let voters decide whether they wanted these rate increases. And where Matt Borges allegedly enters the chat, so to speak, is he, uh, well, Tyler Furman uh, alleged that he was given a bribe by Matt Borges to feed information about that campaign back to him to try and stop it. So there's a, that's really the heart, I think, of the accusation against Matt Borges. Um, another thing that sort of perplexed me is um, householders, you know, how his testimony conflicted with Jeff Longstreth's. I mean, Longstreth's a, a lobbyist for First Energy, la, la, la. But he was kind of um, a right-hand man to a uh, householder, right? Yeah. And I, you know, that was probably, I think, if I were defending Larry Householder, if that was my job, I'm not an attorney, but uh, I would probably go for that, right? Longstreth has already pled guilty. Why not say he was the guy in charge? Like, my client was not the guy in charge. It was Jeff. I didn't know what Jeff was doing. If he did something underhanded with the money, because he led the dark money group known as Generation Now that funneled all that money everywhere. I mean, maybe his best bet is to be like, nah, it was Jeff. It, it to me, it's one of the the key things if you're looking at the jury about this because and it's Householder directly contradicted Jeff Longstreth's testimony because one of the big things that they were alleging about against Householder is that he got five hundred thousand dollars from Jeff Longstreth and the question is okay well what is what is that for and Jeff Longstreth testified well. I gave it to him, and it wasn't a loan because he never asked for a loan agreement. I, you know, he never even thanked me. He never promised to pay it back. And then Householder gets on the stand and said, "No, it was a loan. Of course, I was always going to pay it back." Well, except he didn't, and except he had he made no did. no attempt until the trial to say that he was going to pay it back. Well, uh, so th th there's some important uh, evidence in that regard too. They actually had a lawyer draw up, you could call them loan documents, an agreement for them to be in business together, flipping houses in South Florida. And Longstreth testified that it, this was at his uh, behest because he knew it was illegal to just give householder gifts. And he repeatedly asked householder to sign these documents and the householder never did. And at one point householder late in the game asked Longstreth, are you whole? Uh, the implication, according to Longstreth being, did you get this money somewhere from somewhere other than me? Um, what are your expectations for the balance of uh, the trial, the closing arguments tomorrow? And then and then what, what do you think, uh, Marty Schladen? Well, um, there's speculation that we're going to hear from as many as five attorneys during the close. Oh, so that very well may stretch out past tomorrow. Every yeah. time I predict these things, I'm wrong. Um, and then, uh, well, first the judge has to read the jury. Uh, well, the judge then will instruct the jury. That'll take a lot of time. And then there will be deliberations. And it's anybody's guess how long that'll take. I'm not going to, I mean, we could have a verdict this week. It's entirely possible, but I never want to get, I think trying to predict how long a jury will take is like trying to predict what like the Supreme Court will do. It's, it's very hard to read those kind of tea leaves. I, I think if it's not unanimous right off the bat, right? Like, I think we'll either get a decision very quickly because they ha they're all decided or it could take a while. Cause if, if there are people who are undecided, 
I mean, there's a ton of evidence to sift through. Isn't there almost 900 exhibits? Uh, something like that. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Uh, and again, especially if householder and or Borges are convicted, this won't be the end of the game because they will appeal and then we'll get into the appeals process. Uh, okay. Well, we'll move on. Let's take a break. There's lots more to talk about. Um, it's politics in Ohio today. It is our All Sides, we- I'm sorry, it's All Sides uh, Weekly Reporter Roundtable. Uh, Jeremy Pelzer, politics reporter for Cleveland.com. Marty Schladen of the Ohio Capital Journal and Anna Staver of the Columbus Dispatch are also all with us today. So stay tuned. Uh, this is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. The Ohio House last week passed a $12.6 billion transportation spending bill that appeared to span almost every mode from bike lanes to highways on the map. And for the first time in a long time, I guess, the transportation bill included permission for the state to build out its passenger rail options. Currently, you can get a train from Cleveland, Toledo, or Cincinnati out of the state, but nothing connects the cities within, including the most populous city of Columbus. It's our weekly reporter roundtable still with us. Jeremy Pelzer, politics reporter at Cleveland.com, Ohio Capital Journal reporter Marty Schladen, and Anna Staver, statehouse reporter for USA Today Network, Ohio Bureau. Anna, it's a huge bill. They always are. It's a big state yeah. with lots of roads and stuff, but usually that's what it focuses on is roads and bridges and stuff like that. Um, they're uh, talking about finally letting the state think about expanding passenger rail. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, I think it was the ORDC, which is the Ohio Rail, I can't remember. Ohio Rail Development Commission. Thank you. Uh, But yeah, so the ORDC said uh, that they were going to apply for federal funds to do a feasibility study. So that's like the first step, right? Like what would it cost? What might tickets be? How could they connect? And it's between Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. And then I think Cleveland, Toledo, Detroit. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at like two separate connectivity like rail lines. And would it be high speed? Would it be regular? Like all those things. And so the next step was to put in the transportation budget this authority. So right now, ORDC is the only entity with the authority to operate a rail line in the state of Ohio. This legal change just says, or its designee, which means Amtrak. I mean, it doesn't say Amtrak, but that's essentially what it means. It sort of opens the legal door, should we go down this path, for Amtrak to operate a rail line. I've been following the the the, the people who have wanted rail passenger rail development in the state of Ohio for, you know, 30 odd years now. What's different this time, Jeremy? Uh, There's a couple of differences. One is the federal government is for the first time since about 2010, ponying up a lot of money to expand passenger rail through the uh, bipartisan. I think it was about $750 million during the Kasich administration to Ohio. And that they... Kasich said no thank no you thanks, to. Yeah. But now there's another 
bite at the apple, so to speak, for a lot of federal money. And even though, as Anna said, there's statutory authority that would be granted under this bill if it passes, uh, this is only the first couple of steps in a long process because, you know, right now we're at the stages where we're just putting together kind of a feasibility study. There's a long way to go, and the feasibility study is paid for by the federal government. After that, this is the last step where you can get away with only spending other people's federal money. After this, you got to spend state money. And then about the things of actually implementing the feasibility study. Where do you put the stations? Uh, where, how, you have to study how many people would ride uh, a, a, an expanded Amtrak train. Uh, all these kind of things had to be worked out. And then after this, it would be take state money and it would actually take appropriation of state money to do that. So, you know, Marty Schladen, we said that uh, former Governor Kasich famously said thanks, but no thanks is about $750 million 12 or so years ago. Um, What do you think? I mean, everything's controlled by Republicans, so it's not a Republican thing. They seem to be willing to check it out now. I don't know what has caused the change of heart. I think that, you know, it is, uh, at least in some circles, kind of an embarrassment that mass transit in Ohio isn't any better than it is. Uh, But there are a lot of hurdles to overcome before you can easily get on a train and go to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Um, I I should stay just to because I might have been confusing earlier. Uh, From here on out, the state would have to kick in part of the money. So it's not like the state would have to pay all of this. But the difference is now there's a lot of federal money being kicked in as well to the state money that they would have to pay. Would municipalities get involved at some level? I would think eventually, especially when we get down to the nitty gritty of like, where would you put a station? Would you have to relocate homes or businesses or like when it gets down probably to the minutia of like how this would physically connect across the state? I'm sure like especially the big cities would have strong opinions. Is there any I'm sorry, go ahead. The the one confusing things about this is that the state is only one of a couple of entities applying for this federal money to do these feasibility studies, uh, like the Northeast Ohio Regional Planning Commission has also applied for money to do kind of a, a, a network of passenger rail to do a study of their own, in addition to the state of Ohio. So it's not just the state being the only one trying to do something with this money. Um, and uh, the, um, I lost my train of thought. No pun intended. <laughs> got derailed a little bit. I got a little derailed. Hey, speaking of derailment, there's been a new derailment. Yes, in Springfield. It was in Springfield. It got in, right, in Clark County. And um, thankfully, it was, does not appear to be carrying anywhere close to the same level of like toxic chemicals. So while it is obviously like tragic, it is not the same level of East Palestine. And it wasn't right in a town anywhere. It was. Correct. Oh, it was right by Springfield. Oh, it is right by yeah. Springfield. Okay. It was, uh, you can see in the video, it actually says Springfield Corporation Limit. But uh, apparently there were hazardous materials on the train, but none of the 20 or so derailed cars had hazardous material in it. Yeah. It had things like propane, things like that. Any parallels with the other derailment in East Palestine? Um, Well, aside from the fact that they're both Norfolk Southern trains, which I'm sure is not at all what the company wanted. But uh, I don't know that we'd know yet whether it's related, because I know in East Palestine it was related to the overheated bearing that caused the derailment, and I don't think we really know what caused this one yet. Yeah, it's too early to tell the cause. The interesting thing, though, is it's coming out that this is 
one of several derailments on Norfolk Southern trains in Ohio in the past few months. And normally, you know, probably this would make the local news uh, about this derailment because it's non-hazardous material. But now with East Palestine, it's just shining a light on how often this happens, even if it's hazardous or not. But it's sort of left up to chance uh, what what tanker cars and what rail cars fall over when you have these derailments. I suppose it's lucky for the politicians that the East Palestine derailment occurred before the transportation budget came out because they were able to add in some uh, elements regarding that. What did they do? So this, and it's questionable whether this could stand up to legal challenge because the federal government has a lot of control over trains because it's interstate commerce, right? And so the idea that like Ohio would have one rule, but Indiana would have another, it can get really complicated. So, but what Ohio did was they said that you would need a two-person team in uh, for safety purposes um, at all times in, um, oh gosh, now I can't remember what the front car on the train is called. The caboose? The, the engine? Not the, caboose, the, the engine, engine yeah. yeah. Not the locomotive. Yeah. Okay. So you'd need a two-person uh, team at all times. And that is something that the federal government is considering. They're considering this rule change as well. And it's sort of Ohio saying, this is what we would really like to see. We And trying to put, I guess, a little bit of pressure on the federal government who is currently weighing whether to make this change. Now, Democrats have been pushing this for this in the state on the state level for years. And one reason they're doing so is this would really help railroad unions because you would have to hire more people. Uh, well, and not just that you'd have to hire more people, but it would relieve the pressure. Sure. By being the only Correct. person on. They don't get sick days. They don't get. Yeah. Days off. Uh, paid days. That's off. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. And but it's not the first time they have tried this, but right. now it's found more success. Right. Um, and you could argue because either Republicans are either more amenable following East Palestine or because this transportation budget ended up passing the House with Democratic votes. There weren't enough Republican votes, even though Democrat or even though Republicans control two thirds of the chamber to pass this budget by itself. So Democrats got a number of uh, uh, amendments put into this bill and these rail safety provisions uh, what we've been just talking about and a couple others inserted into this language. The Republican opposition just they don't want to spend more money. Is it simply like that or is it something nuanced? Uh, there were some concern. There were some people that are opposed to the Amtrak expansion. So sort of that Governor Kasich camp of thanks, but no thanks. So they didn't like that language. There was also this is they got very in the weeds about something called like force contracts. And I won't bore people with like the nitty gritty of it but essentially there were a couple of different points where they had some objections to what was in the transportation budget and so I think there was 45 or 46 Republicans that voted for it uh, but everybody who voted against it was Republican so it was sort of a it was a largely bipartisan bill it, it still passed with like more than 70 votes but they didn't have 50 votes from Republicans which is unusual that you will bring something to the floor without the majority of your right. party and of course, this is one of a number of times that in Jason Stevens' young speakership tenure that Democratic votes were needed to get something passed, including the election of Jason Stevens himself. Um, the Public Utilities Commission, the, the bill would require the Public Utilities Commission, which regulates train companies like Norfolk Southern in Ohio, to create a report on the transport of hazardous materials and waste with the Environmental Protection Agency. But you know, um, Marty Schleiden, um, they already all they had that the the the, uh, the vinyl chloride fluoride that was the big problem the biggest problem in that derailment in East Palestine isn't even considered it doesn't even fall under hazardous um, 
at the federal level. Federal rules were changed during the Trump administration. I mean, I'm kind of trying to understand how they're going to collect this data when nobody keeps track of it in the first place. Well, that's a great question, Ann. And, and there's kind of a theme that runs through these rail accidents and House Bill 6 and a lot of other stuff. Uh, the, the fancy expression is regulatory capture. Um, you've got industry, uh, the, the, the utility industry in one instance, the rail industry in another, uh, basically writing the rules that the regulators use to regulate them. Um, you know, so even if vinyl chloride was still a regulated substance, uh, what's to make one think that the uh, Public Utility Commission of Ohio is going to do anything that the uh, big rail companies don't want? They've, they've, uh, the big rail companies have resisted uh, regulation since the time they existed in the early 19th century. And David K. Johnston was writing about how bad regulatory capture was in that industry more than 10 years ago. And I think everyone agrees that the main changes and any reforms that come out of East Palestine will be done at the federal level. Uh, it, this is just sort of state lawmakers saying, okay, what can we do? And these are not major fundamental changes. These are kind of smaller supplementary changes that can be done. And everyone agrees that Congress will I, I understand that you know Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance have co-sponsored legislation mm -hmm. to reform uh, rail safety, and that's where the main work on this will be done. Hmm. All right. Um, the Ohio Senate has passed. It, it, anything else that you wanted to talk about with the um, transportation bill? They spent a lot of money on roads and bridges. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they did. I mean, I guess a quick shout out to Cincinnati and the Brent Spence project that yes. got like funded through this. But yeah, a three billion dollars in federal and state funding for the Brent Spence Corridor project. It's more than a bridge. People. Yes. It's oh, and for me personally, who lives off 23 up in Delaware, they're talking about expanding up to Toledo towards making more of a highway to get to the lake. There's a lot of emphasis in the transportation budget on how to connect different parts of the state via highway as well, how to shorten those commute times. And as someone who gets stuck on 23, I'm like all for that. Yeah, been there, done that. <laughs> One part of the budget that hasn't gotten a lot of scrutiny or a lot of press has been this uh, idea about having an enhanced driver's license. So if this bill passes and is signed into law, you can use, you would be able to use your real ID, your enhanced Ohio driver's license to get into Canada, Mexico, the Caribbean without needing a passport. And this was discussed, I think about eight years ago, something like that. And there were some civil liberties concerns brought up because um, these enhanced driver's licenses have a little radio chip in them. And I know the American Civil Liberties Union That's at the right. time was saying, hey, well, you know, can people be tracked with their driver's license? Like, what what are the civil liberties concerns here? Uh, this hasn't gotten, this is being brought up again, and I'm surprised it hasn't gotten more attention. So uh, Ohio can unilaterally, on its own, make its driver's license? I've got an enhanced license. I'm wondering, they can just decide that Mexico needs to take it? I mean, isn't... Well, the federal the federal law creating this gives it up to the states to decide if they want to have this, and it's up to Ohio now to decide if they want to exercise this authority. Oh. Um, so, several, some other states already do that, like New York, for example, um, and a few others. I, 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 New York stands out in my mind, but they allow, they have this enhanced driver's license already. 
Yeah, there's uh, more hoops as anybody who's gotten a driver's license, one of these new ones. There's more hoops to jump through. Yeah. There's more like documentation that you have to show. The license itself has more security features. So it's like, uh, I guess, a beefed up version of your. It's like not as, I guess, authoritative as your passport, but it's definitely more. Uh, complex than your old school driver's license. Yeah, I remember the good old days when John Kasich was worried about the pink uh, tones on, and thought it had <laughs> feminized um, the driver's license, and that was the big worry of the day. I can remember when they were like laminated, like my very first right one. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the good old days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those were the good old days. Uh, all right, so um, Ohio Senate's passed a measure that would shift control of public education from the partially elected statewide board of education to a cabinet level role under the governor. Um, uh, this is Senate bill number one. It was the top priority. It What does it look like in the House? Well, there's also House Bill 12, which uh, Speaker Stevens said is his priority, and that's a mirror of House Bill 1. Okay. So uh, it is a priority, and Speaker Stevens said that they may look at SB1, they may move HB12. They're not, like, there's not, a hundred percent clarity on what the vehicle would be. I'd put my money on SB one, uh, but yeah. So they're definitely going to take it up. It's definitely a priority of both chambers. And there's always that option of putting it in the budget because this is a change in structure, which would change how ODE, um, you know, divides like where the money goes. So I think there's a decent chance that they're moving it in anticipation of possibly weaving it into the budget. Yeah, kind of like what they did with jobs and family services. Yeah. 15, 20 years ago or whatever that was. One change they made that's interesting is they put in an amendment to delay when this would take effect. So um, I believe it was last Wednesday they had to pass it through the legislature for it to take effect by the start of next school year. And now it's not going to happen. It's going to be the following school year if they pass it. Uh, Feedback from anybody? Are you hearing anything, Marty Schladen? I've just heard uh, people are worried about what this portends actually, you know, for especially long suffering teachers and students. Um, and the school board itself, anything, any peeps out of them? Um, yeah, some of the uh, more Democratic members have voiced concerns about this in particular. Uh, so we have a partially elected State Board of Education, uh, 11 elected uh, officials, eight appointed by the governor. So the governor already has like his thumb on the scale when it comes to the State Board of Education. Um, but they do have public meetings every month. And you can go testify. And believe me, as somebody who covers it, people do. <laughs> they come. They say lots of things. And that would largely go away um, because they would no longer have a say over curriculum. Right? So who cares what they're talking about? Well, they would do teacher licensure and revocation and all that kind of stuff. And that's still really important. Like what if whether a teacher has done something that rises to the level of taking away their license. Would you go to those meetings? I mean, probably I wouldn't cover them anymore. Uh, only if like you might get a local reporter who goes if, say, there is a teacher accused of something inappropriate yeah. potentially. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, they'd be much more of like an occupational licensing board and less of like, you know, the leaders of the Ohio Department of Education. So Republicans have advanced a couple of reasons for this change, one of which is that the State Board of Education does a lot of talking and not a whole lot of action. (laughs) You have these lengthy lengthy board meetings and we still don't have a state superintendent yet after because there's been a whole... It'll be two years yeah. in That's the summer. Yeah. yeah. And so that's 
there's a couple of reasons for it. Yeah. The reason against it, uh, Democrats note that, hey, there was no talk about reforming the State Board of Education until Democrats got a majority on the State Board of Education. And now the Republicans, according to Democrats, are trying to squelch the one area of the state where Democrats actually have some measure of control and they're trying to push the Democratic power out. Hmm. Right. I'm including former state senator Teresa Fetter uh, from the Toledo area. Yeah. Who's very and outspoken. Yeah. Marty. It's probably, probably important for listeners to know, too, that when a bill is designated Senate Bill 1, that means that it is one of their absolute top priorities. And I'm a little interested why something that sounds kind of nebulous like this is that high of a priority. Well, it's also something that... Um, the speaker, uh, I mean, sorry, Senate President Matt Hoffman kind of whipped out at the last minute um, in session last year. Yeah. And at the same time, though, uh, it is something that like Governor Kasich wanted. It is right. something that like governors going back decades have wanted uh, because, uh, you know, the Department of Medicaid, the Department of like Jobs and Family Services, the Department of Health, these are all governor like cabinet level appointees. So like consistency wise, like education is the only thing that doesn't fit that. So like there's this like but you know, neither here nor there. But there is a real question. I think it's a long time coming. I think Kasich tried to do this and he failed to do this. Um, so he did whip it out at like in the final weeks mm -hmm. of the last legislative session. But it is an idea, I think, that has been around for decades. Right. The Senator Andrew Brenner of Delaware, Republican, I think he chairs the Senate Education yes. Committee, Yeah, said that the General Assembly can hold a cabinet-level department accountable through checks and balances, he said, in a way that they can't do the um, um, State Board of Education. But, you know, again, going back to that issue, how much access does the general public have to a cabinet-level department? Well, I mean, you can only imagine if the Ohio Department of Health during the pandemic had a public body where people could have gone and commented, like <laughs> what chaos we would have seen. That's, that's a good point. Uh, let's see. Um, we're going to take a break. Then we're going to get back to it. It's our weekly reporter roundtable. That's Anna Staver, political reporter for USA Today's Ohio Bureau and covers statehouse politics for the Columbus Dispatch. Jeremy Pelzer, politics reporter for Cleveland.com, and Marty Schladen, reporter for Ohio Capital Journal. He's in uh, Cincinnati right now. He'll be covering the uh, closing arguments um, in the trial. Uh, uh, racketeering. Is it racketeering? Yeah, yeah racketeering. racketeering. For um, former uh, Speaker of the House uh, um, householder and uh, also former chairman of the Ohio Republican Party, Matt Borges. So stay with us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. It's our weekly reporter roundtable. Still with us, Ohio Capital Journal reporter Marty Schladen. 
Anna Staver, State House reporter for USA Today Network Ohio Bureau, and Jeremy Pelzer, politics reporter at Cleveland.com. A coalition working to get an amendment on the November ballot that would guarantee abortion rights in the state constitution has succeeded in its first hurdle, that is getting the attorney general to approve the language. But even if the coalition goes all the way and gets voter approval for the change, some scholars believe it could face other challenges. Um, so, And they're likening it to the Ohio General Assembly ignoring the Ohio Supreme Court orders to fix redistricting. Um, what's the deal, Anna Staver? Um, I think this also gets into uh, a challenge about how... So the framers of this specifically said that they wanted to keep it simple, that they didn't want to get into like the nitty gritty of like different exemptions or different this or different that. Because like, A, you could get a really long ballot measure that people are like confused by, but also like... Create, they just wanted to create a fundamental right to reproductive choices and put some guardrails on it. So, like, the amendment says that you can't, that the legislature can create guardrails that focus on health and safety at any point, and then they can restrict abortion after viability. So, and that's where things can get a little murky because, like, how does one define health and safety? Now, if you talk to very conservative people, they say that the mandatory 24-hour waiting period, mandatory ultrasound, that misopristone, the abortion pill, only be administered in a doctor's office. Like, they're – like – what I consider to be a law for health and safety and what, say, like a person like Representative Jenna Powell might consider a law to be for health and safety could be wildly different things. And that sounds like a big, hot legal fight to me. Hmm. You're going to have a big, hot legal fight on this no matter what. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and as Anna says, this is just going to make it even more of you know gasoline on this fire that's already raging. Uh yeah, the, the idea is this is just one of the hurdles for this to make the ballot. The biggest hurdle, of course, is you have to get more than 400,000 signatures to put this thing on the ballot. Um, and then, of course, it has to pass if they if it makes the November ballot. So there's a while for this to go. Right. And first, yeah, Marty Schladen. Well, so a question I have, uh, if you all know, how many days do they have to gather those signatures? This is been an issue in the context of the House Bill 6 trial. They can't start doing that until after the ballot board certifies yeah. the, the language. The, language. So the deadline's July 5th. They need them by July 5th, but the how deadline. much time they have depends on how now, fast the ballot board... Doesn't the ballot board, correct me if I'm wrong, don't they have a limited time within... To, within 10 days. Which, yes. Yeah. They have 10 days after the governor... I'm sorry, after Yost does this. So it's going to happen fairly quickly. So it's, it's going to be a, a, probably a matter of about, I don't know, maybe four months... Mm-hmm. Less than four months? Because in, in the context of House Bill 6, the Attorney General initially uh, disapproved the repeal language. Yeah. And so that second go-round and resetting of the clock meant that they only had 54 days to gather those signatures. Um, so that, that that's an important uh, tactical consideration. Are you – I mean, it, that's an interesting thought. Um, do, the, the strategy that the um, – anti-repeal people like Householder and, and so on and, and, and those folks when it came to House Bill 6, they hired people to distract the signature gatherers. And distract is a very generous I, term. I, I know it term. is. Physically I, intimidate. I, yeah, physically <laughs> intimidate and not only the, the, the signature collectors but people who were thinking about signing uh, the you know, signing the petitions. So I think 
I'm There's, wondering if that might be a repeat. And it that might be a strategy. could be, but I also think House Bill 6 was very complicated, and, like, the average person didn't understand, like, what the the actual details of the law were. And I think abortion is one of those things where you have a very strong, quick opinion one way or the other. Like, you know if you support it or not. Like, it's not the same as, like, understanding what decoupling means in terms of, like, <laughs> and, like energy policy. So I think they have that advantage. Like, you just very off the cuff know how you feel about it. And I also wonder if conservatives, having talking to them, think that they're going to win. Think that, like, fine, let it go to the ballot because they think that in the end, Ohio isn't going to go for it. What evidence are they using for that? It. I mean, look, I know it passed in Michigan. This is almost identical to Michigan's. And it passed in Michigan by 56 or 57, like right around there. Mm-hmm. But Ohio has proven to be slightly more conservative mm-hmm. than Michigan. I wonder if they think it, this is too liberal for what is arguably a red state well they keep saying you keep hearing them say that um the language you know the anti-abortion groups are saying that the language is too vague and it makes it legal abortion on demand up until full term which is flat out not accurate so i'm I'm, it's it's a lie i mean it's not true it's just not true and um and anyway even if it were the percentage of abortions that take place after viability is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Yeah, so what it says is that you can't you can ban abortions after viability, which is somewhere between 21 and 24 weeks. It like varies from case to case depending on health of the mother, health of the baby, that kind of thing. But then it also says that you can't ban an abortion after viability for health mm-hmm. of the mother, but it is written in such a way that you could argue mental health might be a factor and that's where they're sort of saying that the way this is written that you could drive like a busload of exemptions through and I I don't know if practically that would be the case because you're also assuming that a a doctor performing this procedure would be willing to do it for like flimsy mental health reasons not to mention that a Republican legislature and a Republican governor who has signed a number of anti-abortion bills would Mm -hmm. sign on to that right they would just enact a law falls within the parameters of the constitutional amendment yeah they might define what health exemption right. looks like that's what they're asking yeah. the legislature to do with this giving them that much control yeah marty and then if there is a dispute over whether those laws uh, run afoul of this constitutional amendment it would go to an ohio supreme court that is newly less sympathetic to abortion rights true but they can't change if the if the ballot language is adopted then they can't change that can they they can't, but it's their job to interpret the Ohio Constitution, and they could come back and say, well, you know, this is what it says. And, you know, there are a lot of people who feel that that's what the U.S. Supreme Court did in Dobbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they found things in the Constitution that nobody ever found before. Does anybody care that three of the members have gone on record, three members of the Ohio Supreme Court have gone on record saying that they oppose abortion rights? Um, would they recuse themselves if it came before them? If the issue, would they, should they, could they, would they? I find it highly unlikely. That they would uh, recuse themselves, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think they would. I think the argument is um, that they could set that aside in terms of what the law would be, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of the argument that, like, you may personally be uh, opposed to abortion, but that you recognize that this amendment has created a right, even if you disagree with it. It's sort of the argument that I heard actually when I used to work in Oregon. The guy, the judge, the federal judge in Oregon, who heard the challenge to their 
law banning gay marriage was himself gay. And there was a question about could he hear that fairly? Uh-huh. And he was like, yes, I'm gay, but I'm also a lot of other things. And like, I feel like I can read the Constitution in a way that's fair. Plus, the Ohio Supreme Court's going to rule in before this on Ohio's current law, Ohio, Ohio's heartbeat law. And that's making its way up the appeals yeah. totem pole. And so we're going to see the Supreme Court weigh in abortion, even regardless of whether this ballot initiative passes. Now, here's a question for you uh-huh. and Marty. Will we get a decision from the Ohio Supreme Court before we get a vote on this? Yes, I think. I, I, Jeremy would know better than I. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing. Bill. Yeah, because I, I like, you know, sort of gaming it out. The heartbeat bill is a very restrictive mm-hmm. law. Uh, there is no exemption for rape or incest. into a pregnancy. Right. And. Does that make it easier to pass this amendment if that's the law of the land? And I don't know. Oh, I think I think definitely, especially if the if it, House Bill Six is not House Bill Six, Senate Bill Twenty Three mm-hmm. is back in effect. That's going to galvanize voters because we're going to start hearing all these horror stories. Like Dobbs, like Dobbs. Yeah, did. that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Gosh, let's see. Where do I start next? Um, Ohio is supposed to get a new Republican state rep on Wednesday. Yes. We were. Last Wednesday. Yes. I hear he drove up with his Justin family. Justin Pizzuli. Yes. From I don't know where. Uh, Scioto County. But there was a problem. What happened? <laughs> so actually, Jeremy and I were sitting next to each other, and they went out and they took a break, right? 15 minutes more or less, which means like they're talking about Three something. Days. More than yeah. an hour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they started, and like we started hearing that like there's a problem with the nomination because they had finished all their other work and they were going to like, you know, they do the swearing in with the family on the floor. They take the pictures, the whole big thing. And this is, uh, and so this is a very conservative district. So it was a group of Republicans making the choice on who was going to replace him. And they picked a guy named Justin Pizzuli. And then the night before, uh, there was an email that came from that county. So he's from Scioto County. And there was a guy from Scioto County who's on there. He's the Scioto County Republican Party secretary. And he sent out an email questioning the conservative bona fides of Mr. Pizzuli. And according to the Scioto County Republican Party chair, that this was just the thing that like the Marin camp needed, that they were looking for a reason not to pick the guy that Stevens had picked because they were upset about the process. Mm. And so they tanked the nomination because this is the one vote that Democrats can't help Stevens with. Like you have to have a majority of the Republicans to vote on a replacement for a Republican seat. Well, What are they going to do now? Jason Stevens still says that, or at least he told us, that he is optimistic that he can still get Pizzuli appointed. This is, and he made it sound, and even uh, Derek Marin and his allies made it sound like this was a matter of just another, he was a casualty of this ongoing war, the civil war among, between members of the Republican caucus, between supporters of Jason Stevens and supporters of Derek Marin. Of course, Stevens beat Marin for speaker. And I guess the, the great question is, how do you do that? If, if he didn't have enough people to pass Fazuli the first time, Jason sa- Stevens said, you can read into this however you want, that he had enough votes to pass him, but he just wanted an overwhelming majority. You can decide how much you believe yeah. that. But... Uh, the question is what happens now, and I don't think people, uh, I don't know if it's exactly clear at this point. Hmm. But more generally, how crippled is the Republican caucus with this civil war going on? It's 
I think it's challenging. I mean, like you look at the transportation budget and arguably some of the stuff that was in there wouldn't have been in there if they had 50 Republican votes. Right. The Democrats, you mentioned earlier, yeah. Democrats got some amendments. In yeah. There. And with this particular vote, it's tricky because so the committee to appoint uh, Pizzuli, I guess Merritt and his team wanted different people on that committee. They That's wanted like, themselves. They yeah. wanted Derek Merritt. They um, wanted people to have a say. And one of the arguments they made is that like Ron Byrd, not, not Ron Byrd, Adam Byrd, Adam Bird, Representative Adam Bird's district touches his district. They share a county, Brown County. And they were like, why wasn't Representative Bird on this committee? Who knows Brown County better than the guy who shares the district? So, like, there's some argument about the process of picking someone. And that's, like, sort of they said, like, we were shut out of this process. He's just appointing, like, his own people, and we don't like that. And now... Brian Baldridge's seat is one thing, but as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, Representative Chris Jordan passed away unexpectedly. Of Delaware, yeah. Republican. Now, he was very conservative. He was Team Marin. Like, that's going to be a much harder replacement. Like, if they can't get Pizzuli appointed, I don't know how they replace Representative Jordan. And this was on a day, too, that Derek Marin found out that his seat had been moved from the front of the chamber all the way back to the far back of the chamber next to the Democrats. Uh, and did the teacher do that or did the, I, the <laughs> speaker decides uh, where people sit? And I mean, to hear uh, some Republicans talk about it, it's like he was exiled to Siberia. Uh, and there was some Twitter chatter about this, uh, too. And so it proves that this feud, if whatever word you want to call spat, civil war, uh, is alive and well. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, there's the news. Um it's all, all we can fit in. Uh, I announced on Friday that I'm going to be retiring after 40 years in daily journalism. Um, and we did that on Friday because we didn't want to eclipse uh, the the bigger and, and better news that WOSU Public Media has a new general manager, Anthony Padgett. Uh, he starts today. Uh, and I just want to say to Anthony Padgett, welcome to WOSU. And uh, me leaving has nothing to do with you, <laughs> <laughs> with your arrival. I told him today uh, at an all-staff meeting uh, that very thing. So uh, we're pretty excited about that, um, and uh, excited about the future as well. You know, myself. Um, thanks to everybody out there who have written such amazingly kind things. I really appreciate it, and uh, look forward to the next uh, three or so months. Um, uh, having a good old time with the Weekly Reporter Roundtable, the absolute most most uh, popular hour of the week, uh, bar none. So a lot of it has to do with you guys, absolutely. It always has. Uh, Marty Schladen, uh, reporter for Ohio Capital Journal, thanks for joining us today from Cincinnati and carry on the good fight over there. Well, thanks for having me in and congratulations on your retirement. I think listeners should know that being on the air for two hours a day is like running a marathon every day of the week. Thank you very much. <laughs> I wish my thighs reflected that. Jeremy Pelzer, politics reporter for Cleveland.com. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Ann. You'll be missed. And Sarah Anna Staver, political reporter for USA Today Network Ohio Bureau and uh, Columbus Dispatch. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.